Amen. Good morning, everyone. It is such a sweet gift to be together here that, that we can enjoy worship together as a family. And as we continue to worship, we're going to look to God's Word. And so I want to invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll pick up where we left off last week. We are turning to verse 41. And we'll finish the rest of the chapter this week. You might recall last week as we spent time in 1 Kings 18, we saw the dramatic showdown on Mount Carmel. But we set the tone for that by looking to verses 1 and 2, which was God's promise to bring rain to Israel. Now, we did that because it was a reminder then and a reminder we need now that that all of those dramatic events of Mount Carmel were not, they were not the main point. They were not the main event, they were the prelude. The fire from heaven that we saw last week on Mount Carmel, it was, it was a pointer to the truth that Yahweh, the Lord, He is the real God. But what we see this week in the provision of rain from heaven is a reminder that as the real God, He is also a giving God. Now, kids, I want you to listen for something as I read this text and as we go through this sermon. Okay, you're going to hear about Elijah, God's prophet, and you're going to hear a couple of things that Elijah did. Okay, you're going to hear about Elijah praying, and you're going to hear what sounds like a funny story of Elijah running. Okay. I want you to listen for why Elijah prayed and why Elijah ran. And here's a hint. Both of them are going to point us to something true about the heart of God. So listen for that and talk to your parents about it this afternoon. All right? Now, I say this every week, uh, and I'll remind you now. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. It means that you can trust it. It is without error. And it means you can rest in it because it will not fail to accomplish its purpose. All right? Let's look there now. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, this is... This is the word of your power and of your grace. And I pray that you would give us the blessing 
of your spirit that we might see both your power and your grace. And, and in seeing your power and grace, we might, we might look to Jesus, that we might know him and love him more through this text. Would you do this, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Now, I'll confess to you that there is uh, there's something confusing about this passage to me. Uh, I've wrestled with it a little bit, and now let, me, let me give you a little bit of a framework of how I go about looking to the text each and every week, and maybe that'll expose some of the confusion for you. I start the, the beginning of each week with my Bible and with a blank yellow legal pad. I began to read the text, and I began to, to jot down on that legal pad a series of questions. What is what is coming up in this text that, that I'm unsure about? What questions is it prompting? What am I beginning to see about, about the text and see about how it's pointing me to Jesus? I use that uh, process, that legal pad, as a bit of a, a journal. It helps me engage and interact with the text. An interesting thing is, as I go through the week studying the text, I will often go back to some of those first questions, those first promptings, and see how they frame my understanding of the passage and my understanding of how that passage is pointing me to Jesus. First thoughts, first questions this week were, were telling. Verse 41 and Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. Those first notes on my legal pad this week. Eat and drink, question mark. Celebration, question mark. Isn't Ahab the villain in the story? Is Elijah making friends with Ahab? This all seems weird. That's what was at the top of my pad this week. Do you see the dilemma that we're dealing with? This is not what I expected after we finished the passage last week and, and all of the false prophets of Baal were put to death. Ahab was their leader. What is going on as we enter into this text this week? There's good reasons to ask the questions. Now, for one, questions are ways in which we can engage in the text. They're, they're ways in which we don't passively read a passage. We, we ask of the text. We learn. We grow. And so, on one hand, questions are just helpful. But there's also this question. The Bible gives us repeated calls to avoid the foolishness and the evil of idolatry. And so, why is Elijah making friends with the leader of the idolatrous movement? Why is he making nice? And is that what's going on? Good reasons to ask the questions. But there are also bad reasons to ask. And oftentimes, those bad reasons to ask those kind of questions begin to relate to my own heart. You see, I read this and, and I want to stand up and say, hey, time out, Lord. Ahab isn't worthy. And it's true. 
he's not worthy, but do you know who else is not worthy? Me. And when my engagement with the text makes that full circle of beginning to wonder, okay, who am I to question whether or not Ahab is worthy, then at that point, the text is engaging with my heart. Now, I offer all of this as a way for you to think about your own devotional lives. For you to think about how you are to engage with God's Word, not merely to passively read it. It's okay and right to ask questions, and it is right for the text to ask questions of our own heart. And those questions begin to frame our understanding of what the Lord is teaching us in the passage with that framework, it's time to dive in. Verse 42, Ahab ate and drank. Elijah prayed. And in his prayer, I, I believe we find a model of persistent prayer. There's a little detail I skipped over in my emphasis on verse 41. It says there... Is the sound of the rushing of rain. Well, the rain wasn't there yet. But Elijah is anticipating what is to come. And he sends his servants to go speak to Ahab. The 1932 World Series, the New York Yankees swept the Chicago Cubs. Four games, but... The most memorable moment in that series occurred in Game 3. It was the moment in which Babe Ruth walked up to the plate. He had already hit one home run in that game. And the Cubs were, or the Cubs fans, were, were pretty good hecklers. They were giving him a good ribbing. Babe Ruth comes up to bat. He takes the first strike, and the hecklers picked up the pace, and he had had enough. And so he stood there at the plate, and he just pointed out to center field. Now, he proceeded to take strike two, at which time he simply repeated the gesture, pointing to center field. The third pitch come through, and Babe Ruth followed through on his promise. He hit a home run. Yankees went ahead and proceeded to win the game. He called a shot. There's a sense in which Elijah is doing the same in verse 41. He's calling not his shot, he's calling the Lord's shot. But there's differences in what Elijah is doing from what Babe Ruth did in the 1932 series. You see, Ruth called the shot because of his self-confidence, perhaps, his arrogance, Elijah is calling his shot because of his God confidence. He's calling a shot that is rooted in the promise of God. It's a principle for our prayers. That our prayers are to be rooted in the promises of God. Verse 42, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he prayed for the promise of verse 1 to be fulfilled. This is that principle. 
we can boldly pray to the Lord our God when we are asking Him to fulfill the promises that He has already made. For some of us, that, that whole notion is confusing. We think to ourselves, if God already knows, if God has already declared, then why do we need to pray? But the truth is, the promise of God doesn't make prayer unnecessary. In fact, the promise of God makes prayer mandatory. God ordained the rain, promising it in verse 1, but God also ordains the means to that end. He ordains Elijah's prayers by which he will bring about that rain. You see the gift in this? The high and holy calling that God gave Elijah and the high and holy calling that God gives us. It is the gift of the dignity of participation in God's sovereign work. In prayer, we pray down His will. It gives us that joy, that that purpose, that meaning in life that we are so desperately seeking by participating in His sovereign work. By praying down His promises. We also see in this text that, that prayer is to be persistent. Honestly, there's a lot of things that I find confusing about this text, but there's something here in Elijah's prayer. It's the contrast between what we see here this week and what we saw last week on Mount Carmel. You see, in verse 38, when they were having this battle on Mount Carmel, we said that Elijah play, prayed a, a simple, direct, efficient prayer, and immediately the fire came down from heaven to consume the offering and the wood and the stone and the water with it. It was an immediate response to Elijah's prayer, and yet here, as we look to this text, it was not an immediate response, but a repeat seven times. Why? Why the difference between the immediate response and the more labored response? I don't know. I don't know, but I think we can all relate to this call to persistence because we often don't find that immediate response of the fire from heaven. I wonder what God is teaching us through this call to persistence. Maybe, for one, it's a reminder that, that prayer is not some, some magic formula, not some incantation, because if it were, who would be in control then? We would be. We don't control God, though we are called into His work. This work of prayer is a mystery. We are called to be persistent in calling upon the Lord and His promises. Maybe that's part of what the Lord's teaching us through this call to persistence. Maybe also He's shaping us through it. Shaping our, our hopes, our desires, our dependency. We see all of this in, in Elijah's prayer, his persistent prayer rooted in promise. But 
But what about an application for us here today at Christ Church? Well, for one, I think that there is a direct connection to the prayers for parents. You know, we, we baptize children in accord with what we understand of God's promise, a promise that we will say every time when we baptize children that, that God promises throughout Scripture that He will be our God and that we will be His people. That promise that runs throughout the whole of Scripture is one that he says is to believers and to their offspring after them. And so, in the Old Testament and in the New, we see him associating a sign with that promise. And it's fundamental to our understanding of the covenant family. And we don't baptize babies because we think that that sign saves them or because that we think they are saved at that point. But we do so because we believe it is a sign and seal of God's covenant promise to His people. But then, we pray. We pray for the child in accord with the promise. And we pray regardless of the child's age. Praying that God would work that promise to fulfillment in their lives. So see, when we pray for our children in this way, we are praying down His will, trusting in Him alone to act. And we do so persistently, not limiting ourselves to seven times, as all parents know, but persisting over a lifetime that the Lord would work in their hearts. But, you know, as Chelsea has already reminded us, when we do that, we, we take a congregational vow. It's a congregational vow to assist the parents in the Christian nurture of the child. It's a vow to come alongside of the parents and pray for their children. Your elders and deacons were gathered together on Wednesday night, and as we do every time we are together, we pray for the covenant children of this church that God would supernaturally work in their hearts to bring about the miracle of new birth and thereby open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel that they would turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. This persistent prayer is rooted in God's promise to his people. Maybe that's one, not maybe, that is one application point for us to draw out of this text. But there's a second, because we're not just praying for children, we're praying for the church. And that prayer, again, is rooted in the promise of God, who has promised that he will establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church is the bride of Christ. And the Lord our God loves the church even more than we do. He has promised her good, and we pray in accord with that promise, and we do so persistently. Reminded of Charles Spurgeon, the powerful 19th century Baptist preacher in London. He preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and from time to time would get Visitors who would come and ask him, where does your power come from? And take them on a tour of the church. And on that tour, he would take them down to the basement where they would 
find hundreds of people praying for the church, praying over the service. Spurgeon called it his boiler room. Because you see, the boiler room was the source of the power. The church where I interned in Greensboro, North Carolina, had, had its own boiler room. Depending on the Sunday, that boiler room took the form of four to five widows who would gather to pray before the service for the church broadly and for the movement of the Holy Spirit through the service. These these women were women of power who persistently prayed down the promises of God on on behalf of the people of God. Did you know that the first Saturday of each month, the men of the church, or a portion of the men, gather here to pray? We call it a prayer breakfast. It's really just prayer. Sorry, not a lot of breakfast. Did you know that yesterday, the women of the church started a second Saturday of the month women's prayer gathering? The intention, as best I can tell it, for the men to continue meeting on the first Saturday of the month and the women to keep meeting on the second Saturday of the month to persistently pray down the promises of God. Did you know that before our Sunday worship services, your elders gather to do just that, to persistently pray down the promises of God? And the elders gather after each service to pray with you, lifting up before the Lord the needs of God's people. These are vital ways in which we as a church body live out our core value of faith, coming under God, petitioning Him for our needs. Why do we do this? Why did Elijah do this? Well, first, so that God would be glorified, but second, so that the world, the nations, would be blessed. What if? We, as a church body, grew in this ministry of prayer. What might the Lord do as we prayed in accord with His promises? It takes me to the second point. Because I believe that this text also gives us a picture of pursuing grace. I shared my initial confusion. Why was Elijah being nice to Ahab, the evil villain? (laughs) Why was he inviting Ahab to eat and drink? And, And even more than that, why was he praying for rain when it was Ahab's and the people's idolatry that had brought about this drought? Maybe. Because this text doesn't only give us a model of prayer, it also gives us a picture of grace. Let me make a a theological distinction between what we we know of as as common grace and what we know of as special or, or saving grace. Common grace is God's kindness to all mankind, and so... Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.45 says, For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
Yes, it was Israel's sin that brought about the drought, but after a time, the Lord graciously restored the rain. He gave them the gift of provision that their crops might grow. You see, that rain didn't come for them or or even for us this weekend only on the houses of the believers. No, it came then and it came this weekend for us on on the houses and the crops of, of all because our God shows His kindness to all mankind. It's a reminder that all good gifts come from the Lord and Stir within us a heart of gratitude. But it's also another picture of God's gracious pursuit. Because you see, His His common grace is always pointing to the beauty of His saving grace. There's another really big question in this text. Kids, I... I teed it up for you in the beginning when I asked you why was Elijah praying, but I also asked you why was he doing something else? What what did I ask you? Why was he running? You ever wonder what's the deal with Elijah running in this text? Now, I've read this passage for decades, and I have always just assumed this was a race. I've always just assumed this was Elijah showing off his athletic prowess and running faster than the horse. But why? Could there be something more going on? Let's think a bit more deeply about this text. Instead of a race meant to show off his speed, could this be a sign meant to communicate God's grace Ahab. Remember the kindness that that God showed Ahab earlier? And now Elijah's giving him a heads up as if he's saying, hey brother, you might want to hop on the chariot. You might want to get a head start and go back home because this ain't going to be a little sprinkle. You don't want to get caught up in this one. Why does he do that? Why is he helping Ahab out? And then why would he race him back to Jezreel? That was the home of Jezebel, which was the last place he would want to go. There's something else going on here, I believe. Something else that verse 46 is pointing us to. Because you see, verse 46 didn't say that Ahab, or that that Elijah beat Ahab to Jezreel. It says that he ran before Ahab. Maybe ran in front of. We tend to think of that through our own lens where we always want to one-up somebody else with our competitive nature. But you see, in those days, to run ahead of the king meant something else. The king would always have a, a group of foot soldiers or, or servants running ahead of him to herald his arrival. You see, To run ahead of the king meant to be a servant of the king. It seems to be that God is giving a sign for Ahab that as as the Lord's prophet, Elijah could serve the king through the word of God. I believe in this running 
before the chariot, Elijah is humbling himself to act out this sign. Therefore, I believe that this is a radical sign of God's pursuing grace. As he pursued Ahab and through Ahab pursued the people of Israel. Now, we hear that and we want to ask the question, was Ahab worthy of this? No, absolutely not. And that's why I confessed my confusion in the beginning. But the thing is, when we ask that question, was Ahab worthy of this? We've got to ask the next question. Am I worthy? Am I worthy of God's pursuing grace? And my answer must be an unequivocal no. Absolutely not. So why? Why does the Lord pursue Ahab? Why does the Lord pursue me? Why does the Lord pursue you and our neighbors in this community? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 are foundational verses that help me understand not only Scripture, but my place under Scripture. Because there, in those verses, we are reminded that the Lord's ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than my ways. His ways are pointing to His beautiful offer of free grace. So how did Ahab respond? I don't know. By all evidences in Scripture, he did not respond to this Pursuit, But that's beside the point. We're not meant to read this text and find our confidence in Ahab's response. We're meant to read this text and find our confidence in the heart of our Lord. His common grace points to His saving grace. For believers and for unbelievers, to some it will draw, to some it will harden. All of it points to the Lord and His kindness to mankind and His, and his drawing His people to Himself. And so what's the Lord asking us in this passage? What is He asking us here today in this passage? Perhaps two questions. Number one, will, will we, will we as a people, persist in prayer? Will we persist in in calling down the promises of God by persistent prayer? Second, are we seeking the small ways in which He's pointing us to Jesus? James chapter 5 looks back on this account of Elijah, and I think James 5, verses 16 through 18, give us encouragement in in both of those questions. Will we persist in prayer, and are we seeking the small ways in which He's pointing us to Jesus? Those verses, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You've already heard those, uh, that verse. as we confessed our sins earlier, but it continues, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave ground, and the earth bore its fruits. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man just like us. It's easy for us to miss that, given the drama that we've seen over the past couple of weeks in this text. We, we saw him call down fire from heaven. We, we see him now calling down rain, but, but Elijah didn't produce the fire, and Elijah didn't produce the rain. He prayed. He trusted the Lord that the Lord our God would honor His promises to make it rain. And so he persisted. Because of that, James, in the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts forward Elijah as a model for our prayers, an example for our prayers. But there's something else here in, in James's words there in chapter 5. You see, Elijah, he's not a superhero, even though he did some pretty dramatic things. And yet, James speaks of him as righteous, saying the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. But we know from our own experience and from Scripture in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that, that none is righteous No, not one. That includes Elijah and it includes us. If we are trusting in our own righteousness before the Lord. So maybe this is one of those small ways in which the text is pointing us to Jesus. By pointing us to the hope of a righteousness that comes not from our good deeds. A righteousness that comes not from our own records, but a righteousness that comes from another. You heard 2 Corinthians 5.21 earlier in our assurance of grace. If you are a person who memorizes scripture, I put 2 Corinthians 5.21 before you as a recommendation. You see, that verse tells us that for our sake, your sake, my sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That first, he is God, the Father. The second, he is God, the Son. He had a perfect record of righteousness, and yet he went to the cross to take the punishment, not for his sins, but for ours. And in so doing, he became sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God with a righteousness that is graciously given to us by God the Father as He wakens to us to His glory and His grace through the new birth, as He gives us a more beautiful vision of the gospel so that we will take hold of Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. Not only is our past record cleansed, but we are given a new righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Elijah In the Old Testament, he looked forward to the promised Redeemer who would come. We have the blessing of looking back on the fulfillment that is ours in Jesus Christ. Fulfillment of God's promised redemption. And so in Jesus, we find our righteousness. 
righteousness that is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like Elijah, life lived in light of Christ's righteousness is a life lived in gratitude. And it's a life lived through prayer. Prayer for the glory of God and prayer for the nations to know Him. Brothers and sisters of Christ Church, the Lord extends His gracious promises to the just and to the unjust, as we see in this text. And He calls His people to pray in accord with His promises. And so let us be that people. Let us see the heart of God in this passage. And let us pray persistently according to His promises. Amen? Lord Jesus, what a gracious gift you give us of new life and new purpose, new meaning. as We pray your sovereign will. Work it out in us and through us for your glory. In your name we pray.